David French is one of those individuals that says more with less than any columnist that I read. And believe me, uh, when I pull up the New York Times, I scroll down fast to see if he's written that day uh, uh, versus those individuals that say way less uh, while they write way more. David French isn't that. In fact, there's so much to go to here. I don't know where to start. One of the reasons that I wanted to talk to him uh, was because of his article on the university presence, what they got right, what they got wrong. But since then, uh, I've read his Behold Mega Man uh, column, and I'm like, wow, uh, it's a perfect example of what I just described. David, thank you. Thanks for coming back on News and Views. Thanks so much for having me. And if you're going to be that nice to me, I'll just keep on coming back. <laughs> well, don't be don't be surprised <laughs> if I don't call even more often. I, I I do want to start out with the university presidents, what they got right, what they got wrong. This this took all the oxygen out of the nation. I mean, it caused yeah. a lot of discussions. Uh, give people the reason that you wrote the article and what you found uh, to say in the article. Yeah, I mean, I wrote it exactly for the reason you outlined. I mean, people were transfixed by this. And I was noticing that a lot of the discussion about it was really confused because people don't understand, you know, understandably so. I mean, there's not that many free speech lawyers in America, but folks don't understand the free speech implications. And then a lot of people didn't understand why those three presidents were such bad ambassadors for free speech. And so we ended up with this weird situation where the answers the university presidents gave were technically, legally, largely correct. But they were the worst ambassadors because they had violated their own principles so many times to favor groups that they like and to disfavor groups that they disliked. And so it was just a giant mess overall. And I tried to make some sense of it. Well, when I when I saw it, and, and I, I kind of know one of those. Uh, there, there's some ties back to North Dakota for one of them. And, yeah. and you know, when I, when I saw it, it looked just like this train wreck of where you you just want to look at the screen and yell just say it i mean just yeah. just say it i can tell what you think but just just say it and instead it was almost as though they felt they had a lawyer standing over their shoulder yeah it really was it was really interesting because the these are private universities now and that means that they can devise the free speech policies that they want to devise but they do have an absolute requirement under federal law to protect Jewish students from harassment. And so they had to protect harassment, and they have these flexible free speech standards that apply to private schools. But they went back and acted as if they were bound by the First Amendment, uh, which requires, which does require public institutions to protect speech so much so that it protects even speech calling for violence as long as the violence isn't imminent. And so they're acting like they were public school teachers or public school presidents. But the problem is these schools are to have terrible records of free speech. Harvard is the last-ranked school in America for free speech, according to the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, and Penn was second to last. And so it started to look like what they were saying is, well, our Jewish students, they receive all the pain of free speech, but as our history has demonstrated, other student groups we will protect. And that's why people were so angry because they, you know, to the extent they followed this at all, they had some memory of these schools. And these schools have in the past really responded when some groups feel angry and threatened and not responded when other groups do. And, you know, it's their responsibility 
to be consistent, and my argument is they need to be consistent in favor of free speech, not just consistent in favor of of censorship. So let me put you in a spot here. Uh, You're a provost. You're you're one of the individuals that is is part of the board that oversees the institution, and you were about hiring one of these presidents at one point. Uh, Would you uh, feel as though you were in a position where you needed to ask for their resignation. Where would have you been on that? Yeah, you know, I think it would have been, I would have been very tempted and leaned towards resignation for some re- for some pretty important reasons. One, some folks would say, well, my, it's really unfair. Here you have, you know, there was a trap laid, obviously, and they kind of just fell into this trap, and then it's turned into a moment. But, you know, one of your one of your responsibilities when you're the head of an institution is to perform well under pressure. And the higher the stakes, sort of more the visibility of any given incident, the higher your level of responsibility. This is why you're there, not to be a sort of day-to-day administrator, but to really rise to the occasion. And they, they really didn't. And then the other thing is that's all of this wasn't happening in a vacuum. Harvard, for example, already was having a Department of Education Title VI investigation unleashed on it as a result of the way Jewish students were being treated on campus. So some of them were coming in already sort of behind the eight ball because already there had been some really dramatic failures on campus, and then they amplified and magnified it all. And so in that circumstance, the question is, you know, look, my view on leadership is we should have a very high bar for leaders. And one of the problems that we've had in the recent past in this country is the extent to which we have a very low bar, actually, for their character and performance if we like their ideology or if we like their politics. And no, we should have a high bar for everybody. And this would have been an ideal time to exhibit that, hey, look, in the university sitting, we have a very high bar. Maybe you guys in politics, you keep electing people who are terrible, but we're not going to preserve people in high office that are that are really uh, that can't that can't perform when the when the chips are down. Opinion columnist David French is our guest. He writes for the New York Times. Uh, David, when when you look at these three individuals, I think we both did a good job of describing what what we saw, what we thought. Yeah. But the one thing I, I kept asking myself as someone that didn't attend an Ivy League school is yeah. whether or not there's just a disconnect. If the, that the 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 common sense that the the, the country itself might hold, uh, they don't see that in what is being taught in an Ivy League school. I will tell you where the disconnect really came through, and I think you're right on that disconnect. And it was it was something intangible, but it really colored everything. And that was kind of the way, um, really, you know, one or more one of them more than others, but they all three. Um, really appeared to be condescending and smirking a bit. And that was what was really weird to me, to be honest, was I can understand struggling under questioning. It is not easy when somebody is barking at you. That's not a hard, I mean, that's not an easy situation. It's very hard to go through and and come through in flying colors. But to magnify it with the smirking, with the kind of condescension, which played into everyone's sort of worries about this sort of Ivy League culture, that it, that it stands apart from everybody else and sort of looks at the rest of us as not quite sophisticated enough to understand the nuances that they understand. And so that, that smirking, I think, almost sealed, it almost made it more viral, I would say, than virtually anything else. 
Well, Elizabeth McGill, it cost her her job. Uh, you know, yeah. she she basically pulled the pin. But here, okay, body language. I mean, an old I'm an old college football referee. You can you can right. see a lot by how people react. And I thought that Elizabeth was supporting her colleague to some degree from Harvard from what was an uh-huh. absolutely atrocious answer. And and right. I, I got the sense, and I I think when you talk about smirking, you're talking about Harvard, or at least that was my gut feeling. Yeah, yeah. But what yeah. what I got the sense was was that Elizabeth's answers were more of a "Hey, I've got your back" kind of answers, and maybe it's because I've met Elizabeth, and and I I think mm-hmm. a lot of her that I I believe that, but I'm curious what you yeah. think. No, it's entirely possible. You know, when you're in the middle of a difficult situation, and you sort of have that us against them feeling. Um, then, yeah, I can absolutely see something like that unfolding where they're trying to support each other. Um, the problem is they should have been prepped because this this question should have been number one question to prep for. And you have to have two kinds of responses to it. Your response both has to meet the emotion of the moment while it also still is retaining sort of the truth of the law or the truth of the legal standard. And they really didn't, they couldn't no. pull it off. Yep. They couldn't pull it off. Yep, you're spot on right about that. All right. Uh, and I could sit here, I did the time to fix uh, America's most dangerous law. Please read it, folks. Uh, the Insurrection Act, uh, that's one of the things that David had the courage to go out and bring and point out what can happen in this nation if it doesn't get fixed. And he's spot on about that. But in the little bit of time I have left with you, I don't want to not have the opportunity. I, I see you've been speaking a lot publicly on the national circuits about your, your article uh, that you wrote on the 17th, Behold Mega Man, and it relates yeah. to Rudy Giuliani. Uh, yeah. It, boom, right on. The fact that at <laughs> some point these guys sell their soul. I mean, speak to this if you would. Yeah. You know, Rudy Giuliani just had a trial in Washington over his defamation against these Georgia election workers. And a lot of people are covering it as Rudy's trial. I didn't see it as just Rudy's trial. It was the trial of the way MAGA interacts with its opponents or people it targets. And it's not just Rudy who does this. And I listed a bunch of names of people who all had their own independent, very um, very successful careers before Trump, like Mark Meadows, like Kerry Lake, who was a news anchor, Rudy, who was America's mayor. I mean, the list goes on. And then once they encounter Trump and once they get swallowed up by MAGA, they all start to behave like little mini-me versions of Trump. Whatever they were before, is gone. And what they are now are these mini-me versions of Trump that echo, who echo his lies, who echo his rage. And then when they're called out on it, they kind of find religion, when in, but in a really dark way. It's not finding religion the way you think of, say, somebody who's, who's uh, you know, in a criminal trial who says, I'm so sorry, go easy on me. No, they're more like, hey, I'm being persecuted like early Christians or like Jesus. And and it happens again and again. And when you see the pattern, you can't unsee it. And that's Rudy's very sad descent from his own person who had his own life and his own biography and his own accomplishments to a Trump mini-me. And it's just sad to see. I want to add another element into that because I, I, I brought this out onto my show before, got beat up for it, and I'll continue to get beat up for it, and I don't care, <laughs> uh, which is that this 35%, this 32 to 35%, this foundation that the, the Rudys and the Donalds, they always can count on. They're going to be there for, yeah. you know, whatever. That, that 
Donald and Rudy and the way they're living their lives have made it okay for those people to live their lives the way they always have. If that makes any sense, they, yeah, they, they, yeah. they can be racist. They can be, right. I mean, there's a, it allows them to, to live their life in a way that their parents wouldn't have wanted to raise them to. Yes. And, and you know, there's a big question of whether Trump changed things or exposed things. And it's not an either or, but I know for it, he definitely exposed a lot of things. And so, you know, where I live in Tennessee, I have heard more open racism in the last eight years than the previous 20 years. And and part of it is the permission structure has changed. And some of these folks who've long harbored racist thoughts now feel like, well, if the it's now okay to defy the elite or defy the establishment. And so they they will off and I, I have heard many people say these th- words like this. Trump says what I've wanted to say for a long time. Yes, exactly. And and he can use words that that you would have been uncomfortable using in any yeah. society. And and now it's okay again. And it just yeah. and I'll tell you something else, living in an in an area around certain individuals where that they fit that criteria, you don't want to engage in it anymore. In the old no. days, if somebody said a word like the one we're thinking of right now, you would have said, knock it off. You know what? Yeah. Knock it off. I don't want my kids yeah. to hear that. I don't want my grandkids to hear that. Now, they feel as though everything's on their side to do it. And so you end yeah. up in this this brawl over it. Right, exactly. And then this, the, what even makes it worse is when they get opposition, they double down. Because that means now they're fighting. They're fighting wokeness. They're fighting political correctness, whatever you want to call it. And you're thinking, no, I'm not woke. I'm just trying to be decent to other people. You know, I'm trying to treat other people the way I would like to be treated. That's not wokeness, you know. And so there's this real it, – it, it's, it, it's this very dark place where they lash out at other people. But if you defend yourself or respond to lies, then they feel persecuted. And this is the dynamic. And once you see it, you can't unsee it. it. It's so obvious that they will use the most dramatic language, call opponents demonic, call opponents the worst names possible. And when then people stand against them, then they cry out that they're being persecuted. See, nobody likes us. The enemy, you know, there are enemies are out to get us. And you're thinking, wait a minute. <laughs> is it the rule that you get to lash out at anybody you want to? And no response to that is... Yeah permitted exactly or now i'm attacking you religiously because i'm not allowing you to say something as ridiculous as what you said david i've got to say this i know time's short and you got to get going but uh you know from from the news and views crowd here uh people of all different thoughts our thoughts and prayers are with you and your family and your wife nancy and so you know going into this holiday season no we're wishing you the uh the best and thank you for joining us i really appreciate it Thank you so much for having me. Those words are so kind. Thank you. You bet.